0: privilege to be here today. I've longed to be here on several occasions, but without going into any great detail, let me say that I thank God for a church here. It always does my heart good to know that he's still causing churches to be established and causing people to, as I was telling one brother a little while ago, to come out from the woodwork, so to speak, They say uh, Primitive Baptists are going to die out, or they have died out, and yet I'm convinced there are more Primitive Baptists today than there were 50 years ago or 100 years ago. I certainly will try to continue to pray for the success of the work here. The Lord's blessings will be upon me. I didn't know what I was going to attempt to preach on, this is one of those occasions when there are about five subjects that seem to be whirling around in my little mind. But Brother Biblia this morning mentioned the Valley of Acre, and certainly, as depicted in the Old Testament, it is a valley of trouble and a valley of woe. And certainly, we're not going to stand here today and tell you that our experience in Canaan's land is all ease. That there's never any work to do we know it's a good land it's a land that flows with milk and honey and yet at the same time it's a land of hills and valleys and sometimes we're going to get a little tired along the way we're going to get weary and we're going to come to the end of our strength and yea, we're going to be brought even through the valley of trouble and affliction illness And yet, bless his dear name, his grace is sufficient for all our trials. And even in the times in which we're living now, thank God that we can believe that he is the governor among the nations, that he is our rock and our salvation, and that he watches over us in a very special way. I'm reminded of Isaiah 41.10 that says, Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. There is a promise from God. And dear little children of grace, that's why in the midst of the old world in which we're living, when men's hearts are failing them for fear, that we can trust in one who has all power. That's why we can go on in the face of discouragement and afflictions and praise our God, knowing that he's never going to put anything on us that's too hard to bear. Thinking of this valley of Acre, no doubt it's a very traumatic experience to go through. I can't help but think of Sheba as she journeyed that long way from the land of Ethiopia, or Sheba as it was called then, up to Jerusalem. Brother Bibler, you mentioned that to get to Jerusalem, you had to go through that valley. No doubt, Sheba, as she made this long journey, several thousand miles from Ethiopia over to Israel, over to Jerusalem. She had to go over mountains, mountain, down the valleys, through the deserts. Though she was a famous woman and a proud woman, no doubt, or she had been proud, a woman of great wealth and riches and had the magi and the wise men to advise her, yet something had happened to this woman that caused her nest to be stirred up to the extent that she wasn't any longer satisfied with the wise men of her land. She wanted to go up to a place where there was one that she had heard about. And so here in 1 Kings, the 10th chapter, And when the Queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord we won't go into detail uh, trying to explain how she heard of Solomon no doubt she heard of Solomon through the travelers that came through her land the ambassadors perhaps the uh, caravan leaders that came through Ethiopia we don't know except she heard about a great man up there in Jerusalem but she heard of him concerning the name of the Lord. No doubt she had grown up in the Sabaean sun worship or she had grown up in another religion of that day. And yet she heard about a God, the God of the Israelites, the God that was not a defeated God, the God that they said was the living God, the one that had all power to do whatever he wanted to do. Yes, and she was quickened and she was touched to the extent that she wanted to go and so she came to prove him with hard questions we don't know what her hard questions might have been but nevertheless she had many hard questions she wanted to ask solomon what have been some of your hard questions lord how could you elect a people lord why didn't you choose a whole human race Lord, why did you choose a people, one people, to be called your children? Lord, how can love and mercy, how can love and justice kiss one another? We could go on with our hard questions, but he's sufficient and he's able to answer our every question. And now watch it. And she came to Jerusalem journeyed that long way. No doubt she perhaps went through many valleys of acre, many valleys of trouble and discouragement and wearment along the way. And yet by and by she came to Jerusalem. Brethren and sisters, along the way for us this day, we can look back in our little sojourn here below. Those of us who now feel that we've come to the new Jerusalem, Those of us who have looked upon the great temple symbolizing the dear church of God, we can look back and say, Lord, at the time I was coming through the valleys, I couldn't understand it. Lord, along the way I almost felt like I wouldn't make it. And yet when you get to Jerusalem, it's all worth it. It's all worth it. You look back and you say, Lord, I thank thee for those experiences because it just make it sweeter now that I'm here. And she came to Jerusalem, that blessed city, that temple city, the great wall city, the fortress city of Almighty God, wherein dwelt that temple. And there, on the highest mountain of the highest hill within the city of Jerusalem, was the Mount Zion, where that temple that Solomon built was. She came to Jerusalem with a very great train, with camels that bear spices, and very much gold and precious stones. And when she was come to Solomon, she communed with him of all that was in her heart. Now, when she got to Jerusalem, the first thing she did was to go see Solomon. She went to see the king. No doubt she had heard about the fantastic treasures of Solomon. But it didn't say she went to his storehouses first. No doubt she had heard about his great army, but she didn't ask to inspect the army first. She didn't even go see the temple first. She came to the king. And, brethren and sisters, before we'll ever see the church, before we'll ever see that blessed temple up on Mount Zion, we're going to see the king first. And we're going to come in and we're going to commune with him. We're going to bow down before him, and we're going to say, Lord, I'm not worthy the least of thy mercies, and we're going to give him our hard questions. We're going to say, Lord, I can't understand all that's happened to me along the way. And yes, he's the one that'll touch you and say, don't you fear, little one. He'll calm you, and he'll answer all your hard questions. She told Solomon all everything that was in her heart. Not a thing was hid from the king because this king knew her heart far better than she knew it herself. And how much more does our heavenly king know our heart? Far more than we know it ourselves. Solomon told her all her questions. And finally it says here, And when the queen of Sheba had seen all Solomon's wisdom and the house, that he had built. She hadn't seen this house at first. She had seen the walled city. She had gone into that beautiful court of King Solomon. She had seen the king. She had communed with him. She had fellowshipped with him. And then it said she saw the house that he had built. Where was that house? Up on Mount Zion. What was that house? It was that great temple that Solomon had built where the sound of hammer was never heard. And brothers and sisters, I'm telling you today that in a very real sense, in a spiritual sense, there is a house that he has built, not made with hands. house we have into consideration today is that house that he built in Mount Zion, that beautiful house. And that place that they were going to go up in a little while to worship the great God of Israel. How wonderful is that house? I'm made to think of the Israelites as they sojourned there in the desert in their wanderings. We're told that they took the tabernacle from place to place. And that old tabernacle wasn't a very pretty thing to look upon, as far as natural beauty fact, we're told that it was shod badger skin. Now I don't suppose there's anything more ugly than badger skin flapping in the wind. And I can visualize in my mind's eye the Amorites and the Hittites and the otherites of that day looking down upon that old tabernacle there and saying, Well, what in the world do they believe in? I don't see any beauty there. How ugly is that old tabernacle out there in the wilderness? And that's exactly the way the world is looking on the house that he has built today. They say you don't have these things, you don't have uh, musical instruments, you don't have organizations, you don't have auxiliary. So how ugly you are! And admittedly, on the outside, there is no beauty that man would desire. But oh, it's like that house that he had built once you're blessed by the God of heaven and earth to see it, to see it as it is, the outside badger skins begin to melt away, so to speak. And then especially as you're brought within, you see how royally decked it is, beautiful beyond description of the imagination of man, the vessels of gold, the throne of ivory, And there you see the majesty of the almighty God, you see its beauty and its purity, and you're made to bow down and thank him. Thank him, yes, even for that long, hard journey that you had to make. It's all worth it. And so she saw the house that he had built. We have a house today. It's a dear old church, a resting place. A city of refuge from the storms of this life. That rock that'll stand the storms that will be raging round about us. She first of all saw the house that he had built, and then she saw the meat of his table. Now, some of you brethren that do a lot of traveling, you know, when you travel a long way, you're like I am, you begin to get hungry. And when she came to Jerusalem, she saw the temple, she saw the church, and then there was a great feast that was spread, the meat of his table. Let me tell you, dear brethren and sisters, there's abundant meat, there's abundant wine on this gospel table. The more you eat, the more you want, and you'll never uh, run dry. There'll always be food, and there'll always be that wine of salvation to drink. You go out to the order of this old world, and they talk about what they have, and first of all, there's no food on the table for you to eat. Second place, they hang an old cup here, and you think there's some wine of salvation that you can rejoice in, and you pick it up, and it's bone dry. And I'm telling you about a gospel feast where there's abundant food to feed your souls. And that wine that maketh glad your heart makes you praise your God for what he's done for you. She saw all the meat of his table. For a poor old hungry boy, when he sees a table full of food, that's good news to him. And how much more is it good news to us who are hungering and thirsting after righteousness when we come to the temple of God to see that gospel be spread. And brethren, let me say this. This is the only place you're going to find the food for your souls. You aren't going to find it out here in the world. You aren't going to find it in Lodabar, which means the place of no bread, the place of no pasture. The only place you're going to find it is within a house that he has built. Look for it all you want out in the world and never find it. It's here. We wish that more of God's people would see it and come and feast upon these good things. He saw the meat of his table and the sitting of his servants here is a strange thing usually servants are standing up milling about running to and fro and working for the king but the first thing she noticed is that they were sitting there at the feet of king solomon well since this is a strange thing indeed let's analyze it just for a moment certainly we are servants of our god Not only we preacher, brethren, but every uh, blood-bought child of grace, we're servants of God. We're to serve him all the days of our lives. And just like Mary at the feet of our Lord, we need to be sitting at his feet martha was running to and fro in the kitchen of activity doing this thing and that thing she was getting all frustrated and hot and bothered she didn't uh and she didn't wasn't exercising uh, the grace that she should have been exercising and finally she ran out and tried to rebuke the lord and said make mary come back and help me and our lord says martha martha thou art troubled about many things mary hath chosen the good part what's that good part sitting at the feet of our lord getting the wisdom, getting the strength, and getting the grace that we're going to need because it's going to come a time when we're going to have to stand and walk in his service. And the only way we're going to be able to stand and walk is first of all to be sitting at his feet, getting the instructions, the marching orders, if you please, that we're going to need. And so these servants were sitting at his feet, she saw his ministers and his cupbearers, and that's exactly what a minister is. He's a cupbearer. He doesn't bring you the cup of salvation. He brings you that cool cup of water for one who's been weary from a long journey, for one who's gone over the mountains and down the valleys, for one who needs some encouragement. He needs to be sustained. That's what the gospel minister's for. He's to bring you that cool cup of water, not to give you life, but to refresh you to sustain you to help you along the way and to cause you to rejoice i can look back on my little experience many a time when i've been so thirsty i thought i was spitting cotton and when i got a good cool drink of water i don't think i've ever tasted anything better in my life and that's exactly what the gospel ministers for to feed the flock to give you that cool cup of water when you're weary along the way Let's go on. And finally it says that she saw the cupbearers and his ascent by which he went up into the house of the Lord, and there was no more spirit in her. Finally, after seeing all these things, Solomon and his temple, his court, get up, and they ascend up to that temple that he had built. There was a great viaduct up that they had built. And in the spiritual sense, I see a viaduct that our Lord and Savior has built. I see that great mountain of Zion, wherein dwells the Godhead bodily.
1: There I see the
0: beautiful church of God. And over here I see the mountain of man's fall and man's ruin. And in between, there's a great gulf fix. We can never span that gulf in our own strength. We have not the will, the ability, nor the capacity to do it. But I thank God for one who trod the winepress alone. He built that noble vine up by his own sacrifice on the cross. And he enabled all his children now to go to that temple and to bow down and worship and praise the great King of heaven and earth. Yes, you saw them as they went up there to that temple it said there was no more spirit in her that poor old sister listen her she was almost beside herself she never dreamed or imagined there was anything like this in all the world she had almost just said lord it's more than i can take i never dreamed that it could be so wonderful have you ever felt that way in your experience in your little know, sojourn in the church said lord there's no more spirit in me i'm just learning
1: lord it's so gracious
0: and so wonderful and then she said this she made a confession here she said to the king it was a true report that i heard in mine own land she said lord somebody tried to tell me about your power and about the temple about the majesty of your court she has to say lord it was a true report that i heard it wasn't some false alarm it wasn't someone trying to tell me about something that didn't really exist but it was a true report that i heard and then she makes her confession of unbelief she says how be it i believe not the words until i came and my eyes have seen it." she said lord it was a true report that i heard but she said, you know, Lord, I didn't believe it until I came. And you know, I didn't believe it until I came, either. I heard about the truth. I heard about the house that he had built. I heard about the meat of his table, and I said, huh, I don't believe it. I don't believe it, and in fact, I don't believe it, and I won't even believe it when I see it. You've heard people make that statement. Well, you know, by and by, the Lord leads us by his Spirit. And finally, we're made to go down through these valleys, and finally we come to the new Jerusalem. And lo and behold, we get there, and our eyes see it. We have to believe it. Once you've been brought there, and once you've been made to see these things, once you've been made to feast upon the goodness of the Lord and to see that it's his house and he built it, not with man's efforts or man's works or man's free will you're made to say lord i have to believe it now and i rejoice that i believe it and that's exactly the way this old sister was she said lord how i didn't believe it until i came and until my eyes had seen it now watch what she says how i didn't believe it and behold the half was not told me I don't know who told her down there in Ethiopia about Solomon, but I've oftentimes times thought of the gospel minister. We try to tell God's people to the best of our little feeble ability about the church, and about the king, the one over the church, about the abundance of his table, his power, his glory, his majesty, and no matter how eloquent we might be, or how, no matter how learned we might be in our approach, we can't even begin to scratch the surface. We can't begin to half-tell the story. It's beyond the little finite tongue of man to tell the great story of God's love for his covenant family. And we're made to say like this woman, try as they may and bless their hearts for it, they can't begin to to half-tell the story of his love and his mercy. And then she says this, Happy are thy men, happy are these thy servants which stand continually before thee and that hear thy wisdom. Now she says, happy are these thy servants that stand before thee. Brethren and sisters, in spite of the afflictions that might come our way along this uneven journey of life, yet God's people are the happiest people on the face of the earth. We have many things that cause us to be down in the valley, and yet we rejoice greatly in a great God. We rejoice in a God that is not defeated. He's not frustrated. He's not a dead God. He's a living God. And he does his will in heaven and in earth. Happy are these thy men which stand before thee. And brethren, let me say this. We're going to be happiest when we're standing in the service of God. I know there are some of God's people who want to lie back on their flowery beds of ease as Amos us. But it also says, Woe unto them that are, that are at ease in Zion. There is a time to be sitting at the feet of our Lord. There is a time to be getting the wisdom that comes from His precious lips. But there's also a time to stand, stand fast, therefore in the liberty where Christ hath made us free. And we need to be standing. We need to be walking in the service of our God. And you're happiest when you're standing and walking in His dear service. We must hurry then she said blessed be the lord god which delighteth in indeed to set thee on the throne of israel because the lord loves israel forever here she was an ethiopian a stranger an alien from israel and yet she saw the electing the distinguishing discriminating electing love of almighty god because she blessed him in it she said blessed be the god of israel for he hath loved Israel forever. She didn't say he had blessed Sheba forever. She saw the election of God and she blessed him for it. That's what election does. It doesn't make you curse it. It makes you bless his dear name that you're included in that great host that no man can number. It'll cause you to bless his dear name. And she gave the king and hundred and twenty talents of gold and of spices very great store and precious stones there came no more such abundance of spices as these which the queen of sheba gave to king solomon she was a great woman she was a powerful woman she was a rich woman she brought a great treasure to give to the king she gave him hundred and twenty talents of gold but you know, the great King of heaven and earth is not going to be outdone. We give our Lord a few pennies or a few dollars here below, but he gives us many, many dollars in return. We give him a few days or a few years of service at most, and we give an eternity of rest.
1: We'll always
0: be in debt to the great King. He'll never be in debt to us. She gave him 120 talents of gold. A lot of people would say, well, I did a great thing for the Lord here, but so let's see what the king did for Queen Sheba. Queen Sheba, all oh, her desires, whatsoever she asked, beside that which Solomon gave her of his royal bounty. The royal bounty. He opened up the great treasure house. He gave to her far greater treasure than she'd ever dreamed of giving unto him let me tell you in a very real sense our lord gives us far greater pleasures in return for our little pittances here below yes we'll always be in debt to this king the one who draws us the one who causes us to see the fortress city the beautiful city the walls city the one who causes us to see the beauty of his temple the house that he has built the food of his table, the blessed service of God. And finally, he pours out a great pleasure on us that we can't even bear it. It's so great. It said, and she turned and went to her own country, she and her servants. This old sister was blessed above anything she'd ever dreamed of or had ever anticipated. It said she went back to her own land. No doubt she had
1: to go back. She was a queen She had subjects to rule over. She
0: had the affairs of court to take care of. But you know, the story I don't think ends there. I have no Bible for this, but it rings true in my heart. I don't know how many years it was, a thousand or two thousand years later, there was a man that came up from Ethiopia. No doubt he came through the valley of acres, the valley of trouble. He had a long journey. The unique, the black man. He'd gone up to Jerusalem, a grave distance. I think when the Queen of Sheba went back to our land, I don't think she hid her bushel. I don't think she hid her life under the bushel. I think she went back there and told her subjects and her friends and her relatives, everyone that came to her court, about the great God of Israel. And I think she proudly told all those about his power and his love and blessed his great name. And nearly two thousand years later the eunuch had been up to Jerusalem to worship the same God that she'd gone up to worship. And there he was sitting in that chariot, reading from the scroll of the fifty-third chapter of the book of Isaiah. Philip the evangelist was sent from God and Philip came up to him and said, Understandest thou what thou readest? And the eunuch said, How can I, except some man teach me or preach to me? And Philip preached the Christ of the fifty-third chapter of the book of Isaiah that eunuch says what does hinder me to be baptized?" <laughs> there was nothing that hindered philip took him down to where there was much water and said after he took him down into the water and brought him back up out of that water the spirit took philip away i don't think it was chance or i don't think it was accident that caused that unit to be up there at jerusalem i think that living testimony of that blessed woman of Sheba, i think she went back and she told and she spread the word about the great God of Israel. I'm not telling you today to go out here and try to save souls. That's not your job, that's not my job. But I'm saying that we should be out telling others who show interest, who show concern, who are hungry and thirsting after righteousness. I think we should be telling them about our great God. That same God that Sheba blessed, he's still living, he hasn't lost one iota of his power. He's still the everlasting God. He's the one that said, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. And with loving kindness have I drawn thee. Bless his dear name. May we be able all the days of our lives to worship him, to thank him, to feast at his great Thanksgiving table, and at the same time to be standing in his service and to tell the wayworn traveler and the one who's weary the one who's hungering and thirsting about the great god that we try to serve the one who's blessed us and kept us and given us all the good things that we have this day let us be faithful and diligent in his dear service is my prayer in jesus name
1: i read to you from the 11th chapter of the book of Matthew, beginning with verse 25. At that time Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. Jesus had just dealt with the subject of judgment, He had talked about the fact that it was going to be more tolerable for the wicked cities of the past than it was for these cities in which most of his notable works had been done, establishing again the truth that is seen throughout the scriptures that men are responsible for the degree of light which they have received. He then at that very time answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, Much is to be learned from this language. Jesus recognizes the sovereignty of God in this text. Even as he addresses his Father, he acknowledges him as being Lord of heaven and earth and gives thanks because these things have been hidden from the wise and prudent and have been revealed unto babes. Now he deals with the question of divine sovereignty, And what an important theme this is, one that is so often misunderstood, one that is so often neglected in this day. Jesus did not question the sovereign acts of the Father, but gives thanks for them. He gave thanks that things were both hidden and revealed, hidden from the wise and prudent, revealed unto babes. A man generally will complain about that which does not seem to be fair in his own eyes. Man will say, why would God reveal something to one man and hide it from somebody else? Man feels like that all things must be administered equally and that God is obligated to do as much for one man as another. That if God saves one sinner, he must save another sinner. If he loves one man, he must love another man. But the fact is, God, being sovereign, is not obligated to do anything for anybody. He didn't have to love any man. He could have suffered the human family to remain where they were plunged by Adam's disobedience, in a state of guilt, corruption, condemnation, in utter ruin. It was not because he was obligated, but because it was his pleasure that he said he would save a people out of this fallen race. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. We read in the ninth chapter of the book of Romans, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Oh yes, man by nature resists this thought. He says, how can it be? Surely, God must deal with all exactly the same. If he loved Jacob, he would surely love Esau. But here it is in the inspired record. One man he loved, the other he hated. Back again to the thought that God did not have to love either of them. God was not obligated to do anything for them, but it was according to his pleasure. Our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. God is not entering into a contract with the sinner. This is not a matter of bargaining and negotiation. We talk about amazing grace. It really wouldn't be so amazing if salvation was on that basis of God agreeing to do something in response to what the sinner was agreeing to do. That sort of thing goes on in the business world all the time. One man says, I will perform certain things, certain services, or uh, deliver certain merchandise on the basis of this condition being met, this amount of money being paid. Now, if God says, I will deliver salvation as a result of man accepting, or man believing, or man working, or man doing anything, it really wouldn't be so amazing. It would be the type of thing that we're used to in our everyday life. But the thing that's so amazing about the grace of God is that he didn't have to do this. He wasn't obligated to do it. He was not bestowing their kindness upon one who was kind and love upon one who was lovable. He was not here blessing one who was honorable and deserving. But God reached down into the pit of iniquity where man was plunged and lived him up Not just to occupy the place where Adam once stood, but to go far beyond that, to realms of glory, to be conformed finally and perfectly to the image of Jesus Christ. Now, that's amazing, Grace. Man says, why did he do it? Jesus gives us the answer here. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. Just as surely as man starts trying to explain it away and say, well, I think that there was just a little something special about Jacob, and therefore God saved him, and he didn't save Esau. Oh, my friends, how dangerous it is to try to go beyond what is revealed to us. God as surely, as man speculates, he's going to get it wrong. But if we take what the book says, we're going to have the truth and all the truth that's necessary for us to have. Someone may say, well, that just doesn't satisfy me. I want to know the whys and the wherefores of it all. But again, God isn't obligated to reveal any more to us than what he's pleased to reveal, and that which is made known to us is this, even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. Jesus then did not suggest that there was any unfairness about this, nor complained that the Father should have revealed something to some and withheld it from others, but he rejoiced in this and gave thanks for it, even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. And when at last the blood washed strong, the millions upon top of millions that have been redeemed and called from all the angels shall stand in heaven's pure world. Not a single soul in that happy number will be able to say, I'm here as a result of what I did for God. I entered into an agreement. God did his part and I did mine. Therefore, here's the result. I now live in heaven. Oh, no. Every soul there will fully understand that they are there on one basis only, and that is by the wonderful love, grace, and mercy of God. They'll have to sing, even so, Father, for so it's good in Thy sight. That's what this message of grace is all about. Indeed, it is amazing grace. It's a wonderful, glorious theme. God doing something for the unworthy, the undeserving reaching down into the awful pit of sin, and lifting up sinners, elevating them, till they should stand at last in the presence of the Son of God himself, conformed to his image, and to live with him forever and ever. The sovereignty of God is here firmly established, God not only has the right to do what he wants to do, but the power to do it. There have been states and nations who have claimed to be sovereign, only to learn that they had not the power to enforce their claim to sovereignty. But God not only is sovereign having the right, but he has the power, and he shall execute it and therefore accomplish what he has designed to do. Our God is in the heavens, he hath done whatsoever, Then Jesus said, All things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knoweth the Son but the Father. Neither knoweth any man the Father, save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. All things, he says, are delivered unto me of my Father. How often have you heard somebody describe Jesus as being a Savior who is pleading and begging sinners to open their hearts that he might save them? Yet when we turn to the inspired record, we find language such as this in Jesus' own words, as he says, that all things are delivered unto me of my Father. And we hear him pray in John 17 that he had given him power over all flesh, not over part of mankind, but power and authority over all flesh, for what purpose that he might give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. I'm happy to tell you that there has never been any proud sinner who could stand up in the face of Jesus Christ and resist his sovereign will. There has never been one case too hard for our Lord to save, to break the heart of the sinner and to lay him low and to do for him what he could never do for himself. He has power over all flesh, and he shall and does give eternal life to as many as were given Him by the Father. Now somebody might say, well preacher, if parents will just teach their children the Bible and pray for them and try to encourage them in the right way and the preachers will preach to them and other people will properly influence them, we'll finally be able to train them and educate them and and they'll be established in the things of God and therefore they'll become children of God. That isn't what the text says. This true knowledge of God in the heart does not come by training, nor by counseling, nor by education, but it comes by the revealing influence of the Spirit of God. Yes, they shall know him, those to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. Why, my friends, the preacher might be able to talk to the congregation and convey ever so many interesting facts, He might be able to instruct them as far as the historical aspects of the scriptures are concerned. An individual might be able to quote scripture to the yard, have all kinds of available information along those lines, and still not know God in the heart. This knowledge comes by revelation now when one has had this revealed within when the work of grace is accomplished and the preacher has something that he can do he can now talk to that individual because the gospel is from faith to faith prior to the time that this revealing work has taken place the preacher doesn't have one who has the capacity to respond to spiritual truth but this comes by revelation now Following close on the heels of this declaration comes these beautiful words. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I remember hearing somebody say one time when we talked on some of these preceding verses, and we got down to this, and they said, Now that's the part I believe. And I wondered why they didn't believe the other part. Because it's all spoken by Lord. There's no conflict in this. Why, no, my friends, this, this is beautifully blended together. If we just put it in its right place, come unto me. Some people uh, get a little concerned if you even acknowledge that, that this is an invitation. I can see that Jesus is inviting somebody here, but he's not inviting dead sinners to come and get life. He says, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. How many souls today are heavy laden? feeling the weight and burden of sin. If you were to stand on the street corner this afternoon and stop those that pass by and say, are you weary, are you heavy laden, are you burdened over your sinful condition, I'm sure that you wouldn't get very many people to favorably respond and say, I know just exactly what you're talking about, I feel that situation, I feel burdened, yet Jesus is talking to the burdened So come all you that labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest, not I'll give you life. I'll give you rest. I ask you when he speaks to those who are laboring, then is he addressing these words to the living or to the dead? Quite obviously, he has to be talking to the living, those who are alive spiritually. They're weary. They've labored under law, service, and conditionalism, and all sorts of ideas, and and various schemes and systems that have been advocated by the religionists of this world, and they're tired now. They have come to the end of themselves. They're near to despair. We say to such men who are laboring, here's a wonderful promise to you, Jesus says, come unto me and I'll give you rest. You who have been trying to make things right with God, trying to do something about the sin debt, what good news to discover that the debt is already canceled. Jesus Christ paid it in full when he died upon Calvary's cross. Therefore, this salvation is not resting upon your ability to put away sin or your obedience to your faithfulness, but entirely upon that which was brought by the Son of God. Oh, what rest is found? What weakness and peace is enjoyed when one is despaired of help from every other source and has come prostrate at the feet of Jesus, even as the publican did say. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Jesus said, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. He went home with the peace of justification in his heart, for he realized that his only hope was at the mercy seat, Let mercy be bestowed upon him, because he needed mercy. He wasn't in any bargaining position to be able to say, I want what's coming to me. I, I, I want to be sure I get what I deserve. He wanted something better than that. He wanted mercy. And therefore, when he realized that there was hope for the sinner in the mercy of God, he went home with that peace in his heart. Jesus has promised that rest. And then he says, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest to your soul. So there's two rests here. There's one that's promised when the individual comes to the end of himself, and therefore rest in Jesus. And Then there is a rest to be found as you walk obediently from day to day in the service of God. Take my yoke upon you. Not the yoke of law service, what the Apostle Peter said to those in, in the days of the early church who tried to put the disciples back under the law, why tempt you God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples which neither we nor our fathers were able to bear? And just as surely as the good child of God goes back under any form of legalism, he's going to find it a grievous burden. He's going to find that that yoke is most unpleasant. And I certainly believe that it is an unpleasant joke when men are told that they're not only responsible for their own salvation but must also be held responsible for the salvation of others. They are told that if they do not give of their substance or if they do not uh, render the proper testimony and witness and encourage others and say the proper thing at the proper time and that poor soul that their neighbor or friend dies and goes to hell, that it's going to be their fault what a dreadful thing, what a terrible burden to carry. Oh, let me tell you, the yoke that Jesus says to take upon you is no such yoke as this, for he says, my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. When you find out there's just one soul winner, and that's Jesus Christ. He never has asked anybody to help him do that. He saves his people from their sins. When you've been cast the burden of your own salvation and the salvation of others entirely in the hands of Jesus Christ the Savior. There's a rest, there's a peace that is found. Take my yoke upon you. The yoke of Jesus is one that is easy. His burden is light. He tells us to obey his commandments. He tells us to love the Lord our God with all our mind, heart, soul, and strength, and our neighbors ourselves. He tells us to follow him in that narrow way that leads unto life because there's joy and peace to be found there. But it's not a grievous burden. Why have you not found that even when Satan has tempted you and tried to discourage you about going to the house of God and said there's no need to even be there, but you've resisted that temptation and you've gone on and you've heard the sweet singing of the old songs of Zion and the gospel was preached in its purity and power and you were lifted up above the vain things of this world for a little while and by faith were able to see that land that is a very far off and to view the king in his beauty all oh, the joy and the peace and the truth in your soul was Something that could not be adequately described, indeed, you said, of uh, this peace, this rest, this sweeter than all that might ever be found here in this world. Yes, that's the promise of our Lord. Take my yoke upon you, learn of me. He didn't say to learn about some hard theological problem or to learn about some religious denomination, but you learn of me. You learn of Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords. You learn of Jesus, the prince of peace. You learn of Jesus, the shepherd of the sheep. You learn of Jesus, who is the son of righteousness that arises with healing in his wings. And when you learn of him, there's rest. There's wonderful, sweet rest that is to be found. For you are following this one who says, I am meek and lowly in heart. How wonderful to realize that this Savior, who was the very Son of God and with the Father for all eternity, yet when he came here to this world of sin and sorrow, came in humility, he was riding upon the ass, the colt, the pole of an ass, uh, coming in humility to minister to sinners. He came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Uh, Let us then rejoice when we consider it. uh, and let us turn to him today, realizing that there is rest that is promised. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will...